agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined, as always, by the professor of law at Chase Law School, Gadkin. Ken, welcome back to The Politics Guys. It's our fourth week on. Yeah, it's, it's great to be back, and I'm always especially glad that you're back, Trey. I appreciate that. You know, I was I was thinking about this because I get more frequent infusions now. So it's on the same uh, schedule. I get an infusion and I'm on the show. It all goes together. It's one <laughs> and the same. Uh, but I'll take it. I'm feeling good. Uh, so this week, goodness, uh, my, we, 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 I can I can speak. Ken and I were talking about we've got a lot of items up on the show, but some of the ones we're going to try to get to, we're going to try to talk about Biden versus Nebraska. We're going to talk about the Dominion Law School uh, lawsuit. We're going to talk about Scott Adams. Yeah, I don't know. We're going to see what he thinks about us. We're going to find out about that. We're going to talk about the U.S. Department of Energy uh, changing its position on COVID lab leak. Uh, we're even going to get down to and being talking about uh, the potential first uh, veto of the Biden presidency. And then finally, we're going to be talking about the Windsor framework uh, coming out of the Ireland and the UK and the EU uh, uh, earlier this week as well. So there are a lot of things on deck. So I'm really excited that you're here with us. uh, And we're going to get to all of that in just a moment. Okay, so Ken, I think one of the biggest things this week in in an already busy week was the Biden versus Nebraska and the Department of Education versus Brown cases having their oral arguments. And as the Wall Street Journal put it on Tuesday, uh, the Biden administration's plan to forgive student loans as held by 40 million Americans is now, quote, faced a skeptical Supreme Court, end quote. Uh, The skepticism comes in both of these cases. One is likely going to fail. One's likely going to succeed. At least that's my take. We'll We'll get to your takes in a minute. Uh, but the Brown case kind of seems to lack the kind of standing the Supreme Court generally wants to have, uh, but it's the Nebraska case that seemingly is going to get an opinion from the court. So here's the issue and, and what it might mean. The meat of this is what's called the major questions doctrine. So this provides that Congress must, quote, speak clearly if it wishes to assign to an agency decisions of vast economic and political significance, end quote. Now, Even then, if an issue is a major question, it lets judges view the statutes afresh and apart from the agency's interpretation, which is clearly what the conservative justices on the high court were arguing or at least maybe getting at in the oral argument. So the question becomes one potential of agency overreach, which is what Roberts uh, discussed in his case, the West Virginia versus EPA back in 2022, not that long ago. So in short, the major questions doctrine says there is a higher bar to clear for administration power if it will have a significant impact on the economy or national policy. Or as Gorsuch put it, uh, quote, I understand the secretary has considerable expertise when it comes to educational affairs. But in terms of macroeconomic policy, do we normally assume that every cabinet secretary learned as they are has that kind of knowledge, end quote. That's from him uh, in the most recent uh, oral arguments. So this kind of seeming to be consistent uh, with them. uh, uh, So can 
That seems really consistent with me with, you know, West Virginia and what's going on where you have a significant portion of the American economy. Now, meanwhile, liberals on the court like Kagan argued that, listen, this is really not confusing that the 2003 HEROES Act, that's the the, uh, the legislation under question here today, was a straightforward grant of power to the executive from Congress. In her words, quote, it doesn't get much clearer than that, end quote. So what's so clear or what's potentially at this bar is, well, the HEROES Act gives the Secretary of Education the power to, quote, waive or modify any provision, in quote, of federal laws governing student loans, quote, as the secretary deems necessary in connection with a war or other military operation or national emergency. This comes from Section 2 of the waiver for anybody who's like playing along at home. There's a lot going on. So it's left to the president then to determine what is that, quote unquote, national emergency by actually declaring national emergency, which in this case is a national health emergency, uh, which Biden at this point has slated to end on May 11th. So that's one portion of this argument. The other portion, Ken, is coming up is what is the scope or the meaning of that waive or modify provision? In this case, the administration uh, is choosing to not only waive and modify provisions of the loan, which is what the statute kind of in the plain language says, but to actually end them in their entirety. And that's the other part of what was being argued during oral arguments. Um, and the other weird thing is, is, of course, are they doing this for the actual national emergency because the period for the loan is longer than the declared national emergency? Another bit of what's being argued in oral arguments. So I've got some thoughts about this, but I want to turn it over to you now that I've set it up. So, Ken, what is the conservative wackos, in your view, getting wrong about this case? Because <laughs> I knew that's where you're going to start. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, not only are they getting every <laughs> single thing wrong, but also um, – in, in the most corrupt possible way, I think, because... Well, let's do it. Yeah. I'm good, because I'm yeah, curious. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, because I, I, I actually, disagree, I think, yeah. but we're going to find out. Gonna find I out. actually think there are some arguments um, on the plaintiff's side, but I, I didn't hear any of those arguments discussed. And every single argument that was discussed uh, in the case was wholly illegitimate. Um, and, and um, you know, in some cases, you know, literally had nothing to do with legal analysis. I mean, there, there was a there was a significant part of the colloquy where some of the justices, including especially Chief Justice Roberts, you know, just went on about how unfair this was to, to people who didn't borrow money and go to college and, and started a, a, a landscaping business or something instead, which is 100 percent outside any kind of analysis that should be relevant to anything that the court is doing. There's just no that doesn't relate to the law in any possible way. You know, it's, it's just a pure policy judgment where he's saying he disagrees with the policy um, that the administration has reached. But that that really, you know, should be the questions of fairness, uh, whether, whether who this is fair to and who this is unfair to. You know, he didn't even make a, the slightest effort to tie that to any kind of uh, legal analysis. And, and I think that really just gave away the game about how, how corrupt this whole decision was. I will try to, um, if, if, if I take another minute to hit some of the more specific legal points, this idea that there's such a thing as a major questions doctrine that you were talking about, um, it is true that the Supreme Court held that there is uh, last year in the West Virginia versus EPA case. Mm -hmm. um, that, that itself, you know, is an incredibly corrupt holding that was made up um, out of pole cloth. And that was already made up, you know, reverse engineered with this this case already in mind so that there, there would be a precedent that they could apply in this case, which was already visible down the pike um, at the time that they decided that case. But it, but it, it has no connection 
to any kind of recognized legal analysis that, that preceded that case. You know, there, there have been some um, dis, uh, disputes or debates about what's the right um, method of statutory interpretation to be used in uh, administrative law cases. And most of the debates prior to the, that, that major questions doctrine just being emerged out of whole cloth, most of the debates sort of circled around the idea of how much should a court try to read uh, statutory language for itself versus um, how much should a court uh, give some deference to the agency's uh, statutory interpretation. Uh, but, but major questions doctrine really says, you know, do neither. You know, don't read the statute. Don't, don't defer to the agency. Just simply say that, well, if a Democratic president tries to change a, a regulation that was adopted by, during a Republican administration, um, then there's a very high bar to do that. And, and so it's, it's, a, it's a straightforward partisan test that was just um, invented to make it harder for um, uh, Biden to, to take different regulatory paths uh, th th than Trump. And, uh, and, and that, that's the only true meaning of the major questions doctrine. And it, it's a completely corrupt partisan doctrine. But certainly, you know, they did adopt it a, a six months ago and they will apply it in this case for sure. So let me ask you questions because this, you know, this comes up on the regular. And so one of the things, you know, obviously I'm not a lawyer, but I do follow and I'm a political scientist. But it's 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 fascinating to me sometimes when I listen to different legal analysis like yours there and you'll say, well, look. This particular doctrine, it just comes out of whole cloth. It's a bunch of crap. And that's what I hear you saying there. That's fine. Yeah. But I hear a lot of lawyers say that. But from my point of view as a scientist and as a guy who takes a look at this, again, a little bit from the outside, a little bit from the inside, aren't all doctrines things that courts develop from uh, certain points of view that then emerge? Uh, so, I mean – you don't like the major questions doctrine, but every court interpretation effectively is, well, as the one chief justice once upon a time said, the Constitution is what a bunch of judges say it is. So how is it different in this case other than you didn't particularly like the way they were ruling this agency balance of power? Well, that's a fair question. Let me, let me try to answer it. So you know, administrative law, I mean, some, some of our listeners might not really even know that much about what administrative law is. That's a good so point. Have, That's yeah, a good point. I might have to start there. So, um, you know, the, the, the Constitution um, creates an executive branch which executes and administers the laws. Um, but the Constitution not only doesn't tell us what those laws are, it leaves it to Congress to enact those laws, um, but also... Um, the Constitution doesn't tell us what the executive branch is going to look like. It, it really only tells us that there's going to be a president and all the executive power is going to be vested in him. Uh, there's going to be a vice president, but he has no executive power. And then there's you know, going to be you know, whatever else Congress creates. So the idea that we have, um, say, a Justice Department that enforces uh, criminal laws or um, an education department that um, administers the student loan program. Uh, or a, a Pentagon that, um, um, you know, so that we have armed forces of the United States or a State Department to engage in diplomacy. None of that comes from the Constitution. Uh, all of that comes from statutes that Congress has enacted. And, and, when, when, and the reason Congress enacts these statutes and, and creates these agencies is generally because Congress has um, an idea that there should be, um, you know, the, the executive branch should perform certain functions. Um, we should have a military that can um, uh, defend our national security. We should have a State Department that can engage in diplomacy. 
Uh, we should have a Treasury Department so that we have a stable currency. Uh, we should have a Justice Department so that we can have enforcement of federal criminal laws. And so, th- so th- all of these agencies are created with the idea, well, there's some objective um, for why, uh, wh- what do we want the United States government to be able to achieve? And then, you know, Congress gives the substantive direction in the, in the substantive laws that it enacts. And then it also ge- it creates um, units of the executive branch, which we can call administrative agencies, that are given special responsibilities to um, in- enforce and administer particular laws. Now, the idea of having the specialized agencies is the idea that, um, you know, they will develop um, uh, expertise, both in terms of, um, you know, some, in some cases, technical kinds of expertise. You know, we want the generals who run the Pentagon to understand, you know, weapons systems um, and also, you know, policy expertise. And so, so, so that's all baked into the idea of an administrative agency. And then Congress will enact statutes that typically paint in fairly broad strokes and leave the agencies to fill in um, details and also to update those details. So to give sort of a simple example of that, um, the, the, the Clean Air Act uh, creates an environmental protection agency. It requires the environmental protection agency to regulate um, new car manufacture, to regulate the tailpipe emissions that are allowed to come out of a newly manufactured car. Um, it tells the agency that they have to set tailpipe emission standards. They have to revisit them every five years and reset them. And they have to make those tailpipe emission standards um, requisite to protect the, the public safety. Now, the Clean Air Act does not tell the EPA. Um, which tailpipe emissions could be harmful mm-hmm. to the public safety, which ones need to be regulated, um, what levels they need to be regulated at, what what standard the agency should use every five years to decide whether the, the standards from five years ago are still good enough or not, or whether they need to be updated. Um, so agencies are authorized to do that, but but the only statutory language that Congress ever enacted was the language that gave them that authority, that told them that they had to exercise it, and that gave them this substantive guidance that says set those tailpipe emission standards at a level that's requisite to protect the public health and safety. And so if, if somebody wants to challenge um, the particular tailpipe emission standards that the EPA uh, adopts one year, say that say the EPA is, um, you know, is increasing the stringency of the regulation of sulfur emissions and, uh, you know, some manufacturer thinks that's um, going to impose a, a burden or a cost that... Um, it's not commensurate with the, the benefit to the public safety. Um, they can go to court and challenge um, th- that regulation. But what the court's going to have to do is interpret the meaning of uh, th- that, that statutory language requisite to protect the public safety. And since that language is a little bit broad and intentionally so, because Congress intended the agency to fill in the details and, and Congress didn't intend to fill in the details itself, you know, most of the time, um, courts for more than 100 years, although the, the major modern case on this is from 1984, it's a case called the Chevron case, but yep, Chevron yep. was really just summarizing 100-year-old doctrine. Mo- most of these cases would say, um, well, you know, the, the agency gets a certain amount of interpretive latitude because Congress intended for the agency and not for the court uh, to be the primary interpreter of, you know, how much sulfur is too much sulfur to come out of a tailpipe. So, so if the agency interprets the words um, requisite to pr- protect the public health in a way that puts a certain cap on on tailpipe emissions, um, and the court thinks it should be a, a different cap, um, the idea is that, you know, even though the court ultimately has responsibility to interpret the statutory language, the the, the court should interpret that statutory language in a deferential way. Because it should understand that um, that that these are judgment calls that that 
um, Congress intended to give to the agency and not to the court. So that's kind of been the mainstream of administrative law. Now, now there have been critiques of that, which are older than you know the, the, the major questions doctrine critique. And for as long as we've had a, a Chevron doctrine and, and before that, um, you know, some people have said, well, since courts have the primary responsibility to interpret statutes, that, that courts should be less deferential and that courts should um, generally use all the ordinary tools of statutory interpretation that a court would use, which might include um, using canons of construction to interpret the text, you know, which might include taking a look at legislative history, just ordinary tools of statutory interpretation. Um, and shouldn't defer so much to the agencies. And, you know, that's, that's an old critique and it, it's respectable. But I think the thing about the major questions doctrine, which seems to me to be totally illegitimate and totally um, not respectable, um, is that, that rather than kind of tying into this idea that, well, you know, who should have the main responsibility to, to interpret a statute? Should it mainly be the agency or should it mainly be the court? Um, what, what the major questions doctrine does is just make up out of whole cloth right at a time we get a Democratic president. Um, well, no, it should be the previous administration. It should be the previous administration that gets to make the rules, not, not, not the current administration and not the court either. And, and, that, and that's actually what the major, doctrines, uh, major, major questions doctrine says, that it's not even about the court um, interpreting the statute for itself. It's about the court saying that the, the agency shouldn't make a big change to the prior interpretation um, unless unless Congress says to you. And so well, that's I went back to the, the I went back to the, the West Virginia v. EPA, EPA case. That's what I started with. And so I, I, I hear potentially that critique. But, you know, in the words of the actual opinion itself, it has to do with the agency itself moving a decision that in some ways is too vast for the actual scope of the significance of the statute itself. Um, and as a presidential scholar, I can say that in, it has, in fact, been the um, trend over the last, uh, well, at least the last 50 years for sure. Presidents want to be able to have more. It, I, I also, I love that you use the tailpipe emissions. That's what I do in my uh, general education political science class. <laughs> so that was fun. I was like, oh, see, I love when we converge. Um, right. But presidents love those kinds of statutes because it allows them then when they come into office uh, to potentially make major unilateral changes to policy. And I think one of the questions that comes out of that model, that agency model that we do have is, well, at what point has age, have, do agencies potentially break that already vague, in some cases, or purposefully open uh, for a different kind of interpretation, uh, uh, statutes that Congress has have passed to empower those agencies? And shouldn't, is there not a moment, and again, this, this again, the, 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 again, you know, it's that, that an agency, when it's starting to move to, va in the court's opinion, vast economic and political significance, in other words, if it's beyond the scope of what an agency should be dealing with or where it crosses the boundaries of just what that agency deals with and others, and therefore isn't a decision to be decided by the court per se, but rather that Congress itself has to then come back and speak into. I mean, so maybe it sucks that it happens during your particular presidency. But again, as a presidential scholar, no matter when you do it, it's going to it, – anytime you uh, restrict the president's agency power, one party or the other is going to hate it because you happen to be in office when that happens, which is why precisely for the last 50 years, 
presidents slowly over precedent through agency creep have expanded their unilateral powers and the party out of power has always hated it. So when Obama was in office, president uh, 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 Republicans absolutely hated it. Uh, I was casting back even earlier uh, for a similar kind of issue uh, looking and uh, recalled that you know, Democrats arguing that George W. Bush was overstepping agency power wildly uh, when he uh, when the, when his particular uh, education department in that case uh, had uh, changed um, its ruling on race neutral college admissions, uh, calling it an absolute overreach of the statute. Uh, <laughs> So again, that's not a shot or a here, you know, you know, so there on that front. But just as a as a, as a yeah. presidential scholar, there's always going to be that view. It, we would never yeah. constrict presidential power if what we said was, well, they're just doing it because of Biden. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. It's, I I don't know how to get at that. Yeah. But shouldn't we want there to be constraints and guardrails on those agency powers? I mean, again, yeah. as a presidency, I I tend to like this whether it's partisan or otherwise, because it seems like that it is a potential constraint on a long-standing set of presidential overreach when it came, comes to agency. I think, and Congress does it willingly, because it gives them advantages in elections. But that's a different story. Continue. Well, let me, let me, what do you think let me about say, I, I agree with a lot of what you said in principle, but I think it has no application to the student debt case, right? So I, th- I think what you said in principle is that it would be um, better um, if, if Congress... Uh, enacted statutes that did provide a little bit more substance and, and, and didn't um, give such broad grants of power to the executive. And, and it would also be better if, um, you know, once Congress did start drafting such, such statutes that, that gave more detailed definitions of, of what the law did and didn't require, it would be good if, if courts would actually um, interpret those statutes properly and fairly and, and not always uh, defer to the uh, president. And, you know, those are two principles I agree with. Um, but I, but I think they have no application to the student loan case because in the student loan case, the fact is that Congress didn't write the kind of statute that you're saying they should write. You know, they they wrote a statute that gives unilateral authority to the Secretary of Education to waive any statutory or regulatory provision applicable to federal student loan programs um, if the Secretary deems that doing so would ensure that recipients of financial assistance are not placed in a worse uh, position financially in relation to the national emergency. So it's just if the secretary deems is the standard, if, if he deems well, And you have to be in a national emergency, which I think is the other portion here, because yeah, part, right. I mean, the other, the other legitimate part, I think, of this critique is, is that what the agency is doing is not confined potentially just to the period of what was defined by the president as a national emergency, even if you read it in the way I think that Keegan did. Now, that doesn't come up in the oral arguments, but... Let me finish there, because I agree with you on that point, but I want to finish the part that I disagree with you. Oh, I'm sorry. Continue. So so if Congress actually says that, you know, if there is a a national emergency, and, you know, absolutely formally there is one, you know, so if there's a national emergency, which President Biden has declared and has not undeclared, um, and the secretary deems that, that, that recipients of student loans... Um, might be placed in a worse position by that national emergency, and it's just if he deems it, he doesn't have to be right. Um, then, then he can he can waive uh, any regulatory provision applicable to the student loans. So, what I'm saying is, the, the the ordinary methods of statutory interpretation would suggest 
that even if you weren't going to say, well, the president always wins, even if you're going to say the court should just enforce the language of the statute as written, and and if the president doesn't win, then he doesn't win, um, it seems to me that um, it's a very broad statute that, that probably does give him this power. And I think some of the arguments that you were raising about how to read the statute, you know, are we in a national emergency? Or there's another one that they didn't talk about, which is... Um, would students be placed in a worse position financially um, if if their if their loans weren't forgiven? You know, uh, given that they've already had zero zero interest payments for years, um, and that might have already been enough to make sure they're not in a worse position financially. I think those are serious statutory interpretation arguments that a serious court could have looked into to to think about ruling in favor of the plaintiffs here. But what I'm saying is they didn't do that. You know, they didn't look at the statute and interpret it. They just said, well, this is a big change. And it seems unfair to us, and it's different than what Trump did, and, well, and that's, that's enough put, reason. I'm going to push a little bit there. I'm going to push a little bit there because it's not just as different than what Trump did, or it's what we didn't like. What I hear there again, though, I mean, again, agree or disagree with it, uh, is kind of what I had again quoted from uh, Gorchik, which is the idea that if an agency's reach in a particular issue outside the bounds. Like, so for example, here, he's saying, look, I get that you might be thinking about this in terms of educational affairs, but if you exercise such power that you're going to affect the whole macroeconomic system, which is what he, what he asks in this particular question, doesn't that require the court to say, well, wait a second, isn't that then outside the bounds of what you're trying to do in this statute? I mean, isn't that at least a fair question? It's not the same as saying it's different than what Trump did. The question is to say, is your action of such scope that it actually goes further than anything that uh, uh, resembles education or educational policy and starts yeah. to become something larger? It starts to become yeah. macroeconomic policy, which yeah, at which point there's a problem. And, and that seems – that again, yeah. right or wrong, that yeah. seems to be what was being asked. Now, yeah, that again, is if you being asked. Sure. But it's not a legitimate question because it has nothing to do with law. It has nothing to do with law. It's an argument that that is phrased completely independently of looking at the statute that they're actually supposedly interpreting. Well, unless you assume, of course, that the act, as it does in its own uh, preamble, says that it's for certain issues dealing with education and that it is, in fact, empowering the education department. And then assuming that that also extends to the education department being able to do things that are outside of the scope of education. I think, I mean, I see a, I see a logical train there that is also legal. It's not doing anything outside the scope of its statutory authority. It, the, this, this provision literally relates to waiving student debt. You know, that's what it's literally empowered to do under the statute. And it's, it, it's, it's, so it's this kind of hypothesis that this is something outside the statute, you can't get there other than by interpreting the words of the statute and figuring out, you know, how is it outside the words of the statute? But that's that's not what the major questions doctrine does. The major questions doctrine is not addressing itself to the words of the statute. It's just addressing itself to the idea that this is a big change that costs a lot of money and it seems unfair to the justices and it's not what Trump did. That that's Those are the only questions that are asked under the major questions doctrine. Okay, well, we'll pause there and let's move on to another lawsuit. Let's move on. To, I, I don't know. I was looking at the time. We've got 30 yeah. minutes already. Yeah, 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 all right. Let's keep it moving. <laughs> so the Dominion lawsuit. So this past week, Dominion Voting Systems, which sells voting hardware and software and was the target of attacks by individuals claiming that the Trump versus Biden election was rigged, recently opened a defamation case against Fox News. Now, 
defamation is not an easy item to prove. And we might need to talk about that a little bit. Uh, but in this case, there is a possibility that they could win. But whether they could win or lose, there were some big things that came out of the lawsuit this past week. The largest of that this week was the recently unsealed documents uh, about Rupert Murdoch, who was asked under oath if he was aware of individuals like Lou Dobbs and Sean Hannity endorsing false election claims. Murdoch agreed they had endorsed it. Now, meanwhile, other filings showed a difference between the public side of individuals like Tucker Carlson, who sent texts referring to Sidney Powell and others as lying and unhinged, but continuing to purport those unhinged views on their shows. Now, this is all really central to the Dominion case against both Fox News and Fox Incorporated because it would be liable if the case is is that Fox News knew that the Dominion claims were false and that they were going to continue to broadcast those known lies and had the power to stop it, but chose to let it continue. Now, again, Fox News is arguing that's not the case in their counter portion of the suit, and we're too early to probably tell what's going to happen with that. But what do you think are the chances of this moving forward? And what about these, uh, you know, what about Murdoch and uh, Carlson basically having two sides to this face? The private, yeah, these guys are nuts, versus the listen, we have to uncover every vote kind of differentiation there. Yeah, well, you know, I th- this case is going to is going to continue moving forward because, you know, on on the, on the one hand, um, as you know, Trey, maybe not every listener knows, the, the First Amendment gives a, a pretty wide uh, berth for 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 news media to cover the law or to cover the news and, and to make mistakes when they cover the news. So, there, in in the every or everyday ordinary um, operation of a, of a broadcast station or a newspaper or any news outlet. Um, reporters who are trying in good faith to cover the news are, are going to make errors. And uh, in, the, in the famous case of New York Times versus Sullivan in the 1960s, the, the Supreme Court said that, um, you know, errors that are made uh, just out of honest mistakes or out of ordinary negligence, um, even if they have an incidental harm on uh, the reputation of innocent third parties, um, those innocent third parties generally can't sue because otherwise newspapers would just get sued out of existence based on just the ordinary, you know, every day they're going to publish something that turns out not to be true. But there is a limit on that principle. And and the limit um, that the court erected in the Sullivan case is called actual malice. And the idea is that um, although, although newspapers do have some immunity from liability for their honest or good faith or even negligent errors, um, they do not have that immunity um, if the errors are intentional or were made with reckless disregard for the truth. And and usually, you know, it's a high bar to prove that because it usually requires some kind of extrinsic evidence. Right. Some wasn't evi- a big one of those the uh, when the Olymp- the Olymp- uh, the uh, Olympics were in Atlanta? Yeah, the guy who um, was accused I, of being the bomber. Yes, but I can't remember the name of the case because he ends up winning. Yeah, yeah, he ends up winning because there was this reckless disregard for the truth. Exactly. But the evidence in his case wasn't even as strong as the evidence in this case. Well, that's why I was wondering. I was going to ask you that. So go ahead. That was going to be my next question. So take it away. This is almost unprecedented. I mean, the the Sullivan (laughs) case has been around for nearly 60 years. And I cannot remember a case where the extrinsic evidence was as strong as here. Of, of intentional falsehood or reckless disregard for the truth, because you've got this trove of emails where all of the same uh, um, uh, programmers who are going on air on Fox 
um, are, are, are emailing each other saying, we, we know none of this is true. You know, we know there was no election fraud. What, what are we going to do? You know, no mass election fraud that affected the outcome of elections. We know these people like Lindell, the MyPillow guy, are, are lunatics. Um, you know, are we really going to give them airtime? And, and the answers are always, well, we, we have to because that's what our viewers want to hear and we just have to do it. And or so in some you, cases, we can't lose out to Newsmax. Newsmax or to, what's yeah. the other one, one something? Um, uh, OAN. Yeah. Oh, 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 yeah. 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 That they had competitors. They didn't want to lose the viewers who believe all this stuff. So they just, you know, we're like, we got to run with it. And now I guess even Paul Ryan, who was on the Fox board of directors, you know, had been contacting Murdoch at that time and telling him, you really can't run this stuff. And, you know, all this is coming out. And, and they just were like, well, we know it's not true, but we need to run it anyhow. And that included that they were specifically defaming uh, Dominion voting, which made these voting machines. And they they were claiming that, Dominion had um, taken money from uh, um, Hugo Chavez, who's been who was already dead for about eight years by that time, to 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 um, to to tamper with the outcomes of the counts and things like that. And they there was you know this was all just made up stuff, and and they knew it, and they aired it anyhow. So you know as hard as it is for a plaintiff to uh, move forward um, in a, in a um, case against a news outlet that um, you know is covering the news, um, I think in this case the the there's really no um, there's no chance that this won't move forward. I mean, this is this is the strongest uh, e- e- evidentiary basis ever I've ever seen in any case to show um, uh, a- actual malice. Now, the other piece of this is to think about what that um, da- those damages could be. I was thinking in terms of the Atlanta case. Uh, you know, the the was he a hero? Was he a bomber? And uh, on the uh, on the evidence, nothing. You know, he he came away with a lot of money, but it wasn't uh, enough to stop any organization from existing. But with Dominion voting systems, of course, I mean, they're losing contracts and the ability to operate as a result of what happened with Fox News. So this, the extent of what they could claim as damages would be absolutely, you know, it, it, it is far larger than what it, one individual could do. Uh, so what, what, on that side of it, what do you think about on the damages side? Oh, yeah. I, mean, I think they'll, you know, Dominion's not as big a company as Fox, so I don't know that they'll be able to take Fox down with this. But I didn't I mean think, down. I just yeah, meant yeah, yeah, that yeah. relative amount. I'm Great. sorry. But, yeah. but I think certainly the amount of money that um, Dominion was worth at its peak, um, they can probably get that much. And uh, they may be able to get more because, um, you know, it's, in some kinds of cases, again, this is very rare in uh, um in defamation cases because of the First Amendment. But in some kinds of cases, it can be possible to get punitive damages on top of actual damages. So, you know, if, if the if the um, if the conduct of Fox is found by a jury to be so so wrongful that it shocks the conscience, um, then they, they could award uh, uh, additional punitive damages on top of the actual damages. But I think the actual general damages would be about as much money as Dominion as a company would have been worth at its peak. And I don't I don't know how much that is. And I'm sure it's it's as much as it would be. I'm sure Fox could probably, you know, withstand it. And Fox probably has some insurance, too. But it's it's you know, I think we could be talking really maybe the the biggest defamation judgment in American history here. The last piece of this, and this is something that I've, I've tried to work at, is there's kind of these long lingering ideas in some quarters that say, well, but. But wasn't there maybe something somewhere? I mean, I mean, regardless of the fact that how many court cases that we have, none of them move forward. Do you think that there's any hope? I, I tend not to. But do you think that there's any hope that coming out of the Dominion voting systems lawsuit, that there might be a little bit more of the, well, if there was going to be a day in court, 
this would have been it. Uh, as a matter of fact, you you saw this past week, former President Trump just going off the rails a little bit in terms of, well, why isn't Fox just publishing all of the evidence right now in court? Uh, a lot of this is getting tied. Do you think there's a possibility that this might change the political conversation some, or do you think that's just going to go unseen or not really move the needle? Uh, are you asking, um, is Fox going to defend itself on the grounds of truth? Is, is that is that what you're no, asking? No, I'm asking, do you think this will potentially sway some populations of the voters to some of the holdouts, I, maybe even when it comes to the legitimacy of the election to go, well, here was a chance if you were going to lay it out and nobody ever does because they can't. Yeah. No, I, I feel like I feel like the, the belief of certain uh, segments of the American population that there was uh, um, that the election was stolen by Biden and, and, and that it was fraud that took the election away from Trump. That's essentially a religious faith, I think. It's not essentially a faith that's susceptible of, of being disproven by uh, evidence. And, uh, you know, you, you know, you would think, well, you know, Fox has, you know, I did just look up the number. It's one point six billion they've been sued for. So they have one point six billion at stake here. You'd think if they could argue that what they were reporting was true, they this it. would be a good time to argue it. Right. <laughs> you know, the fact that they're not even raising that argument, they're not even trying to make the argument that what they broadcast was true. They're, they're just trying to make the argument that um, essentially that it was just uh, individual choices of, of, of Tucker Carlson or whoever, and, and, and Murdoch's trying to distance himself and the, and the Fox Corporation from all that. But nobody, nobody's arguing in court that any of this was true. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That might make some people, you know, it should make some rational people say, well, they have such an enormous self-interest here. They would win the case if they could prove that what they broadcast was true. You know, why don't they try to prove it? The only logical answer is there's no way to, there's no way they could. Um, but yet, you know, I think more likely, you know, people like Trump are saying, well, this is just because, um, you know, Murdoch's uh, gone soft and Murdoch's decided now that he's against Trump so much that he'd rather lose this case than, uh, you know, prove out and forth that, that Trump was right. Yet another like thread that. of the conspiracy, yeah. effectively. Yeah, fair. I, yeah. That's again, I was hoping that you would give me hope, Ken, but yeah. there you go. Thank you for bringing me down. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, do you think differently? I mean, do you think? No, there are... I don't. I was hoping you'd convince me otherwise that yeah. maybe that really was like, I, that's why I led it with. I don't think this is going to be the case, yeah. <laughs> but maybe, you know, anyway, well, we can't always get what we want. What we can do, though, is we can move on to our next uh, uh, our next item, which is going to be Scott Adams and getting away from black people. You know, always a good sentence. We'll come back to more about what that means in just a moment. Okay, so Ken, uh, Scott Adams, who is known for his bombast at the best of times, seemingly went off the rails this week. On his own video podcast, uh, he was dealing with a poll from Rasmutin Reports about the phrase, it's okay to be white. And he noted that the number of African-Americans who didn't agree with that statement uh, meant that African-Americans as a group are a hate group. And as a result, white Americans need to, quote, get the hell away, end quote, from African-Americans. Uh, here's the full, here's the quote in full, quote, if nearly half of all blacks are not okay with white people, according to this poll, not according to me, according to this poll, that's a hate group, Adam said on his uh, uh, YouTube show on Wednesday. He went on, quote, I don't want, ha I don't want to have anything to do with them. And I would say based on the current way things are going, the best advice I would give to white people is to get the hell away from black people because there is no fixing this, end quote. 
So that's what went down on Wednesday. Then Scott started to lose his partnerships as a result of these comments. I actually even took a look at him on Twitter, and I, maybe this is not a big surprise, but he was getting a plus one from Elon Musk because Elon Musk likes anything that's going to have some attention for him. What Scott kept talking about was how nobody is disagreeing with him, Ken, and that they needed to look at his argument. So... Scott, I'm taking you up on your word. You were actually on the politics guys uh, a few years ago. So we're going to do just what you've been begging for somebody to do. I'm actually going to be reaching out and tagging you in this episode. And I've looked through your tweets. I have taken notes on your clearing interview, clarifying interviews with Hostep Jesus. If anybody has absolutely what you have asked for, it is myself and Ken, we're going to break this down. We're going to get into the weeds because I think what this show does best, the politics guys, is have deeper discussions. And I don't think Ken and I had ever been afraid to look at things we disagree with. And Scott, I think you're pretty much dead wrong about your comments. I'm going to start right there. And we're going to get into it. Ken, I'm going to give you all the context. And listeners, we're going to, we're going to take him up at his word and we'll see if he has a response or if he wants to uh, have a conversation with us about this. So let's get into uh, uh, the details. So what he says is pretty straightforward. But in his follow-up interview with Hot Step Jesus, which I'm going to just be honest, isn't a particularly easy thing to watch. Ken and I were talking about that uh, prior to the show going live. Um, he argues that he isn't right wing. Instead, he says that the problem is, is he's too far left wing. Uh, he has overwhelming support for black initiatives, including reparations. Uh, and that a weird twist of fate for a long time, he, quote, identified as black, end quote. So, Ken, I don't know. Maybe I'm going to start identifying as Jewish one day. Uh, and you can, I don't know. Anyway, why? <laughs> I don't but anyway, but he, why would he want to do that? Well, in his words, it would give him, quote, the best of both worlds, end quote. He can look white, but be black. That actually was his argument. I, I wrote this down. Um, now, instead of really answering the question, Hot Step Jesus even really asking him, like, why did you do this? Why would you do this? You know that this is happening. Uh, he eventually says that he only does things for multiple reasons. Uh, and that he's sure that people will figure out those multiple reasons. But one of them was, quote, I decided to pay the price for free speech, end quote, uh, so that he would continue. We can, quote, start a conversation, end quote, about what I can only assume he means race. He argues that the context is that we should all be against discrimination at the individual level, but that we need to, quote, avoid people who are not like me, end quote, because that is racism when it's working against you. So we all need to be racist if it's working for us. So Scott would go on to argue that he would tell a young black man that he should go to the top of the pile and get in on affirmative action, which, by the way, affirmative action is a good thing. But a young white man needs to flee all the female and black institutions because the discrimination is set up against them. The problem he wants to get at is this. He says that if, quote, white people are the problem, then white people will stay away, end quote. Now, that's not a particularly new argument. And I'll be honest, the fact that it took me uh, an hour and a half to figure it all out means it's not exactly an elegant argument either. either. But I think if I'm going to give him the absolute best interpretation, Ken, it's something like this. Even if institutional racism is true, then white people need to flee certain spaces. Now, it took a, little, a lot of work to get there. 
Uh, and I think, again, I'm being kind of generous to his argument, but I don't want to attack a straw man. So what do you think? Let's assume that is, in fact, the most general uh, argument that if institutional racism is true and we're going to assess it, then the people, the white people in this case, need to flee certain spaces. What do you think about that, Ken? What do you, th- what do you think about this argument in its entire weird entirety? You know, the, the, <laughs> the only way I could even uh, try to make sense of it is to think that he was um, trying to use rhetorical flourishes, uh, maybe, maybe that he thought would reduce to absurdity certain other kinds of arguments. It's, it's hard for me to imagine that he could have, that anybody could have literally meant, you know, that, um, you know, white people better just stay away from, from black people because a certain percentage of black people uh, think it's not good to be white. Um, you know, it, 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 it's, it's such a nonsensical and, you know, you have to even wonder like, you know, why is he thinking about this? But, but I, I suppose, you know, what, what he might've been trying to get at is the idea that, um, in his view, um, it's a little bit more socially acceptable for, um, uh, African-Americans to have negative things to say about whites, uh, than vice versa. And in his view, um, there should be, they should be equally e- equally socially unacceptable, and so um, maybe that's what he's trying to say. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, no, I hear what you're getting at. I, I guess I mean, and maybe that might be the case, but for the individual who tries hard to make this case that he's a leftist who wants affirmative action, that seems to fly in the face of that argument because ultimately, if you agree with some versions of institutional racism. What that means is, is that the reason that it's seemingly socially uncomfortable in one direction is because one group has had the majority of the power. <laughs> yeah, that's the part he's leaving out, of course. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, again, you, we don't, you don't have to agree with that, but the fact that he doesn't even wade into that makes me think that he really just was spouting. And then yeah. I think he had, this is all a post hoc justification and he wants us to, he wants to say a lot of words and have nobody do what we're doing right now, which is think about those words. <laughs> yeah. Because I think that's a lot of times, and this gets to a larger issue, I think a lot of times, unlike shows like this, the goal is to say a lot of words and then at the end of them to just move on. I, I don't think he thought carefully about that, but I'm trying to be, I'm, I'm trying to assume maybe that's not the case, but I agree to you. Like, so what would you say back in terms of, again, I, I want to talk about in terms of power? Like, well, it yeah. might feel a little uncomfortable because of power dynamics, says the political scientist. Yeah. Right? yeah, I mean, right. I mean, I think what you're getting at is, you know, we think it's kind of normal that it's more common for um, employees to have negative things to say about the boss and that it, we don't expect that to be in parity. We don't think the boss should be saying just as many negative things about the employees as the employees are saying about the boss. We can understand why it's more socially acceptable uh, for employees to grouse about a boss than for the boss to use a big platform and badmouth all the, the employees. Right. And uh, I, I think that's the piece of his analysis that just, you know, he seemed a little bit um, obtuse, like he just couldn't see that that piece of it here. What about this other bit? I think he's trying to poke it. And, and I see this is that something that comes up. This idea, well, race is just a construct. Uh, you know, I can be black. You could be something else. Uh, he's probably going to maybe he maybe he's actually eventually poking it at sexual orientation. Let's set that aside for a minute. Uh, but but what about this idea? And, and I do think it's one that is I don't want to say it's prevalent, but there's undertones to it. 
that says, well, ethnicity is really a made up thing. And if we just stopped thinking about ethnicity, then this would make society better. What about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of the American right thinks that, I think. I mean, the the, um, Chief Justice Roberts essentially wrote that in his Supreme Court opinion in the uh, the, the desegregation case about the Seattle schools and the Louisville schools. Um, so th- those school districts were still using race as one factor in how they did uh, K through 12 um, uh, assignments in public schools. And uh, in, in the opinion that struck that, that down, um, uh, Chief Justice Roberts wrote, well, the, uh, the only way we can, um, you know, get past a, a discrimination based on race is to stop discriminating based on race, and I, I think that sort of encapsulates that that um, what I would that idea that I would attribute to the American right that um, if 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 color blindness is sort of a societal ideal, which I think a lot of Americans would agree that it is, you know, then then some of the American right would say, well, then um, the only way you can ever get to it is just to start acting like we already have it, um, and uh, you know, it, it does again, it it sort of leaves a lot of power imbalances and wealth imbalances and educational attainment imbalances um, right in place, you know, if we're just going to say, okay, you know, the whites have all the pie, but now let's, let's all, you know, just, you know, just start, you know, forgetting about that and not paying attention to race. It's, it's, I think that's the missing piece there. Now, if we take his argument seriously, he wants to then also say, but look, we need things like affirmative action, which seems weird. So I guess one of the other questions that I, uh, I and this, maybe this is, a, this is a better one, maybe the last one we'll kind of deal with on Scott, and then, and then we'll see what he says, or if anything. Uh, but effectively, like, well, you should want there to be uh, uh, discriminatory policies in a particular direction for a while. But if you're in the, the newly out group, if we're trying to take him in his thing, well, then you should feel free uh, to, to flee. But that, 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 those two things to me seem mutually exclusive, right? If the, if the goal, right? Yeah. You can't both say, I think affirmative action is a really great thing. But if you're going to have it, that everybody who would now have the inverse position needs to, to get away from it. Well, either there's something wrong with the policy or there's something wrong with your, your suggestion, right? Those two aren't compatible. Am I missing something? That's the other piece of this that I think just seems nonsensical to me. Yeah, well, I guess um, I get. I'm sort of thinking his ideas are somewhat aligned with some some aspects of the American right, but I'm I'm glad that uh, that you're seeing it as nonsensical. But I, what I what I what I understand that to mean is that um, that, that, that you know that that he believes in a kind of separate but equalism, right? That that, that integration is the evil in his view, but that you know his his notion of, of fairness would be you know a kind of a Plessy versus Ferguson world where. You know that that, that um, all, all these groups that have animosity based on things like race could just stop dealing with each other. But you know, each each group would be you know somewhat equal. Um, I, I I take it that's what his idea there was, and I you know because he's sort of saying it's never good to be a a, a, a minority. You know, if you're a minority, best thing to do is to withdraw into some smaller community where you're not a minority anymore. Um, and I think that's a very segregationist vision. Yeah. Well, so again, I think, Scott, I, th- I think we've given you a lot of time and I, I, I think two very reasonable people are very both confused by what you're saying. But once we get down to it, we disagree deeply on the actual merits of it, both a guy who's more or less on the right and a guy who's more or less on the left. And so 
uh, if you think we've gotten this wrong, I think you should just state it pretty clearly. Why don't you state it pretty clearly for us? And we'll, we'll have a conversation about that. I'm actually going to be shooting this episode uh, his way. Okay, but so can let's move on to some other news. Yeah. Uh, and let's move on to, you know, this is going to be coming up. This week, the U.S. Department of Energy made the news. It changed its assessment of the origins of the, court, uh, the COVID-19 to a lab leak. As the Atlantic, the Wall Street Journal and the, uh, has, has put it, uh, you know, we're going to be stuck with this question for a while. So what's, what's going on? Well, there are now a number of outlets, uh, including the, energy, uh, the Department of Energy, who are now arguing the pandemic, quote, more likely than not, the result of a research-related incident, end quote. Now, that does not mean that there is anything approaching uniformity about this. The intelligence community overall still says it's more likely than not an issue of natural exposure with just uh, 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 two believing in a lab leak. Again, as the Atlantic has put it, this means if you're keeping track, we're in a 5-2 position among all agencies on if it was a lab leak. If you, t- if you include non-government agencies, it changes a little bit, gets a little bit more 50-50, but nevertheless, there's not a ton of consensus. Now, to this point, nobody is arguing that this was a weapon, and I think this is really important. Um, nobody is arguing that China was attempting to poison the world. Uh, the evidence in favor of natural causes is that there is a high probability of an event in this particular market. But the fundamental problem is there's kind of two coincidences that each of the theories have to explain. The, the central ambiguity is such that you know, COVID's o- origin is either one, you have a human market that has nothing to do with the Wuhan Institute of Virology that just happens to be right there and happens to specialize in the study of bat corn, uh, uh, cor- uh, 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 viruses. But on the other hand, if COVID really does start in a lab, as the other position holds, then it's going to be a pretty amazing coincidence that so many of the early infections happened to emerge in and around the venue for the sale of live wild animals, which is exactly where the first SARS coronavirus may have started 20 years ago. But all that as it may, each of these have this kind of difficult coincidence that they have to deal with. Now, the other problem with all of this is, is and again, I'm the political scientist, so I'm going to bring this to bear. China's an authoritarian regime, which in no way is transparent, doesn't want to be transparent, and certainly does not want to have any international organization investigate no matter what the origin of it is. As a matter of fact, this authoritarian regime has shuttered evidence that would otherwise be available. For example, this uh, in the past few months, the World Health Organization had to shut down its attempt to audit and conduct further studies because China would not comply. So this leads back to something else we've talked about on this show, uh, Ken, and I've, I've thought about this this week. It's to the question of this edge of outright conspiracies versus rational questioning of authority. And, you know, we talked on this. uh, While there is certainly a sector of the conspiracy theorists who at the outset have said, look, this is is a lab leak, uh, China trying to attack the United States. Now, look, the truth is finally out there. It's coming out. Um, You know, making claims without evidence and then later being quote unquote right is really no comfortable because it's just due to the chance, or is the old adage has once said, even a stopped clock is right twice a day. I guess if anybody knows how hands on a clock work anymore. <laughs> but, uh, you know, but so, but 
I think one of the things that you, you know, that I think is worth revisiting is the idea is have we tended to want to sweep up uh, those rational questioning voices, you know, when we've had th- these kinds of moments? So, for example, um, you know, we did the show where we, we had some questions about governmental funding in China and might say, hey, wait a second. Is this really a great plan? Given that there's some you know, ambiguity here of what's going on, as a matter of fact, you know, uh, although I don't agree with him on everything, this is something that Rand Paul was hammering on since the beginning, which is why are we giving funding to authoritarian Chinese labs for gain of research funding or adjacent kind of issues, even if it isn't gain of, uh, of research, especially given the low level of protection some labs use. And now that we see some of this, you know, in other words, did we maybe has the media swept up too many voices into the into the conspiracy uh, uh, framework? And I say that carefully because there is clearly and obviously conspiracy things there. And again, just because without evidence, there were some people who said this is a weaponization. None of that's being said here. And it. And certainly until there's some evidence otherwise, you know, saying that is no more valid now than it was a year ago. So what do you think about all I – mean, I raised a number of points yeah. there, Ken. There's a lot of points there. Yeah, um, yeah I mean I, to me there's the, the – the, 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 maybe the, the – <laughs> The level I would think about this on is more on that uh, the meta maybe the meta level of thinking about you know why why are people getting dug in on this question you know was it a lab leak was it a natural thing when the the truth is that's that 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 question is a question that none of the people who are really um, you know except for the except for the experts you know most people who feel that they they have a position on that you know, actually have no basis for having the position that they have, whatever that position is, right? You know, the, 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 ability to, the ability to figure this out is something that requires, you know, a great deal of expertise about um, infectious diseases and, and a great deal of um, information about what was happening right there in Wuhan, China at that time that, you know, is only barely known to our intelligence agencies and is widely, not, not widely disseminated to the general public. So, you know, n- none of us have the tools and none of our listeners have the tools to, to figure out which, which story is true. But yet a lot of people are kind of vested in the idea that, that one story or the other is true. And, and I think that that, you know, does have to do more with political attitudes than with Anything that relates to the the question of what was the origins of, of COVID, which is ultimately can I ask you something about that too? Because because yeah, yeah. there's so many things going on there, and that is I'm not even sure if it's. I mean, I think there is a political question layer there, so that's not a disagreement. But as I was thinking about this week, I think it's also just part of our humanity that when something gravely terrible happens, we want to be able to identify the thing that's wrong, right? Or even better, the person or entity to blame. Because doing that offers a level of catharsis. Maybe, but um, I feel like that that's an optimistic spin. But but I think what I'm seeing here is a you know basically your typical right-left divide. And there's no reason for it, right? There's no reason that 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 um you know if, if anybody was just trying to you know figure out what caused COVID. That it would turn out that you know when you have a, a state of almost complete indeterminacy, that you know people with right wing orientation would say it's a lab leak, and people with left wing orientation would say it came over from animals. You know, and and well, that, but um, might it not yeah. be part of that is like 
I think in some ways we're the, you know more on the right would like to have a particular individualized someone to blame, right? If it's China, then we can blame China and we can retaliate on China or we can set up different things against China. And I think on the left, the idea is we don't want to have individuals to blame. And so our catharsis can be, well, it was random. It, it just happened. Yeah, I think you're right about that. But yeah, both both uh, both things, both both frameworks you just described literally have nothing to do with um, uh, what would be a more sincere, honest in- inquiry into trying to figure out. Oh, no, out, not at know, all. I, I don't disagree. You're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I think, you know, that, that that people feel vested for re- for reasons like you talked about that basically align with their their political ideologies in in, you know, thinking that they're that they can therefore apply their own political ideologies, and that will tell them what the right answer is to the scientific question of uh, where, where did COVID-19 come from? But it, it has nothing to do with where COVID-19 came from, right? Mm-hmm. And and nobody could know. And, and as you mentioned, you know, right now, I think I think you even, you know, you, you certainly correctly pointed out the uncertainty within the government. It's maybe five agencies now still, five agencies within the intelligence community still say that it's um, uh, come over from animals. And yes. two now say that uh, it came from the lab leak. But but the other part you didn't say is that all all seven of these agencies, plus other agencies that also weighed in on it, they, they, they rate the how much faith they have in their own yes they're they're is it strong is it weak and many of these are kind of weak to moderate at best i i I I hadn't explored that yet no yes the f the fbi which is along with the um energy department the only other agency that has said it's a um a a lab leak the fbi says they're moderately confident in that assessment the the department of energy only says they're very weakly confident in their own new assessment and and all the ones on the other side say that they're weakly confident in their assessment and then um they're actually you know you only counted seven but more than seven were asked to weigh in but um you know a number of the others said well we we can't make an assessment right so (laughs) so, i mean really if you look at that picture you're basically you know it's not just a picture of division It's, it's a question of division where even the even the advocates on one side or another you know their official position is but but we could easily be wrong you know we we, we think it's slight our side is slightly more likely to be true than the other side um but 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 you know we could be wrong like that's really the stance of pretty much all these agencies and uh so i think that you know ultimately has to be um put down to say you know all the best scientific thinking and all the best intelligence thinking and all you know all the best military thinking They've thrown up their hands and said, "Who knows?" And and that that's all we can know. And and you know, you or me aren't going to know more than 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 the director of national intelligence knows. And uh, you know, and and so you know, I just think it it is really ultimately when we talk about what's the origin of COVID, we're really talking about an entirely different question than what's the origin of COVID. Because if we were just talking about that question, we would just say, "Who knows?" And that would be all we could say. Well, let's move to one last thing because I do want to get this in. It, you know, we're, we're, two of us can. We always end up. We can't be bound just by the borders of the United States, like Mike and Jay, right? Like we're just too big for that. And so I think this week there was one last thing we wanted to touch on, which was the United Kingdom's uh, reaching an agreement with the EU on changes to the Northern Ireland Protocol uh, being labeled the Windsor Framework. And so this protocol is part of the Brexit deal. Now, as listeners may or may not know, uh, Ireland is long divided. I hope you know this. Uh, but Northern Ireland is under the control of the United Kingdom, while Ireland is an independent country inside of the EU. Now, once you have Brexit, though, this leads to a difficult question. Are we going to have to have a new hard border 
inside of Ireland, i.e. between Northern Ireland and Ireland. And that's not something that many people thought was a good idea. As a result, could that bring back tensions that had existed for a long time uh, uh, in Ireland? So this week, the answer to the do we need a new uh, hard border is no. Instead, what's going to happen kind of in a, in a big way is that Northern Ireland gets to stay in the common EU market, even though the rest of the UK is still out. But there's going to be kind of two lanes of traffic, you might say, coming from the UK to the nor- Northern Ireland. Goods staying in it are in the green lane, meaning they get minimal checks or issues at the border. And the other, the red lane, those are items that are slated to go into the rest of Ireland, that is the EU, and therefore have to go through a higher level of paperwork. And this is especially important for things like food and for medicine. I know you've been looking at this carefully, Ken. Uh, so you know, this is one of the things that we had wondered, like what's going to happen? How, how will the EU uh, handle this? But it it seems like there's a framework and a compromise moving forward as we speak. What do you think about this? Mostly, yes. And I, I definitely think the Windsor uh, framework is good news. Um, there are some complications because the, 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 the red lane, green lane uh, um, approach, which you just talked about, is actually one of only one of three prongs of, of the Windsor framework. And it's the one that I think there's the most optimism about, but people are talking less about the other two prongs, which could be trickier. Um, so yeah, the, the red lane, green light lane idea, it was it was a particularly an irritant for, for um, British loyalists in Northern Ireland that, you know, during during the, the, the past couple of years with the Northern Ireland protocol, since, since Brexit happened, um, there had to be a customs barrier in the Irish Sea, so if if um, you know if goods went from England from from England to Northern Ireland, even though both are part of the United Kingdom, um, they had to go through customs. And if people were moving things like pets or, or getting garden plants, you know they they had to take them through customs, even though they were um, you know from their view staying within the same country. And so the the red lane green lane approach does get rid of that, and I think that's a you know an unmitigated good. Um, the other two prongs that um, were negotiated, I think. Are already, um, you know, being interpreted differently by the Brits than by the Europeans, and so oh. this this could cause some problems. Um, the, the most significant one of those is is the provision called the emergency break. Um, so the idea is that um, uh, that although, although the, the the red lane green lane concept um, implies that stuff that comes from England to Northern Ireland. That that's going on to Ireland, um, you know, has to go in the red lane because that stuff's coming into the the EU. But 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 that means that um, you know some stuff that's just moving from Britain to um, Northern Ireland, uh, England to Northern Ireland, and route to someplace else um, is going to have to be compliant with EU laws. And the the framework says, well, the 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 elected assembly in Belfast um, can override that sometimes. That if if they want uh, certain EU laws not to be applied in Northern Ireland, then they, they can override that. Um, that's how they're interpreting it. But the, 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 um, the, the EU is already interpreting it not to allow for that and, and to say that um, the final say will be in the uh, European Court of Justice. Now, now this, um, this, 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 that dispute may be more academic than, than uh, immediate because Northern Ireland still has no um, functioning local legislature. Right. So the, 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 there's a power sharing agreement in Northern Ireland that requires um, the Sinn Féin and the, and the Ulster Unionist Party 
to share power and and prevents um, prevents their government from functioning if, if if both parties don't show up. And uh, um, Sinn Fein typically wasn't showing up before the, the 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 Northern Ireland Protocol, and then the DUP they stopped showing up also um, around the time of the um, Northern Ireland Protocol because they were opposed to it. So there, there there's been no functioning elected assembly in Belfast for for years already, and the DUP has not said whether they're going to um, accept uh, the, the the Windsor framework. So I mean, it'll go into effect whether they accept it or not, because the British Parliament will agree to it. But but if if they don't accept it, then they may keep uh, failing to form uh, a North Irish government. Another thing that happened during all this is that Sinn Fein, for the first time in Northern Irish history, um, Sinn Fein won the majority of seats in the Northern Irish Parliament in, in the Storm, Stormont, which is the Northern Irish Assembly. So even though that assembly is not meeting for the reasons I just described, you know, if somehow it actually would reconvene. Uh, Sinn Féin would be in, in charge of it. And that's the Catholic, um, you know, Irish Republican Party. That's not the Protestant Party, even though we're talking about Northern Ireland, which historically has been the, the Protestant um, uh, section. So there's all those kind of problems. And finally, there's a provision that allows the British Parliament to set uh, value added tax and excise duties for Northern Ireland. But it seems that the Ulster Unionists in Northern Ireland don't want, want that either. They want actually more home rule over that, um, which is kind of ironic to me because their their whole thing is they want to be part of Britain, but now they want to also have home rule over over things like taxes and excise duties. So, um, so I, I feel like it's 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 probably going to move forward. It's probably a good thing, but it, it's 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 and it probably is going to keep a an uncontrolled um, open border on the island of Ireland, which is wonderful. But I think what it's not going to do is be um, immediately accepted by enough constituencies in Northern Ireland to return um, any kind of democracy or home rule to Northern Ireland right away. Okay. No, I'm always curious about this. This is not my uh, area of expertise. Maybe sometime we'll have to have on. I have a colleague uh, who is actually uh, an expert on Ireland. It'd be interesting to see how this works out down the, the line. Well, Ken, it's been a lot of fun doing the show with you. Yeah, and we're going to do a bonus show soon too, right? Yeah, well, anyway, we got, we got the midweek show coming up next. There'll be the two of us uh, doing that, and we're going to be continuing on our take a look at the Constitution. We're going to be finishing up uh, Article 1, Section 8, and uh, you know, maybe getting onto the presidency at some point. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're going slow, but no, I mean, that, that's, that's, that's part of the deal, right? When you want to do that. And so we're going to be uh, kind of finishing up some of the powers of Congress, uh, which I'm excited about. Uh, it's one of the areas I know, but I'm really excited to get when we get into article two. Uh, and then I'm sure you're excited for article three as well. Uh, the short, it's the shortest, so it won't take us very long. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Now, if you're not already a supporter of the politics, guys, we really hope you would be considered becoming one. Uh, so, for example, the midweek show, you're going to get full access to that. Uh, you're going to get it ad free. And that's all kind of fun stuff. And not only that, uh, you keep this podcast going. There's other kinds of goods uh, goods you get. Like I said, the, the ad. Uh, but don't forget that we not only get to kind of break away from the constraints of the cycle on that show, but we get to go into things that you're interested in. How do we know what our listeners are interested in? Well, you tell us. And one of the things that supporters get is you can join our very active Politics Guys Discord group. Uh, I love being a part of that. A number of things, this, the, the midweek show that Ken and I are working on came out of conversations from that group. We love having those conversations. and I'd love for you to be a part of that too. And you can become a part of that if you become a supporter. There's even other kinds of Politics Guys gear and other benefits at different levels of support. So if you want to check it all out, not just hear me 
talk about it, head to patreon.com slash politicsguys. If you'd like to support us, we're also on Venmo. We're at Politics Guys. You can also support the show through PayPal. All of these are in the uh, support links are in our show notes. So you can just tap on them and be on your way. Or if you prefer a desktop like Ken, you can point your browser to politicsguys.com slash support. Yeah, if you'd, if you'd like to get that midweek show, but you're just not in a position to support us financially, that is not a problem. You can just shoot an email to Mike at politicsguys.com, and he's awesome. He'll get you set right up. Now, whether you're a supporter or not, we really would, and I really would appreciate if you would subscribe, rate, and review us on whatever podcast app you use. Being on the top of those heaps, it means a lot of traffic, and the only way it happens is a lot of people like the show and take two seconds to push those buttons. It also really, really helps if you have a thought or something about the show to share that episode on social media and tag us in it. Love to interact with you there. And that kind of leads into our last thing. If you've got a question, comment, gripe, manifesto, or really anything else you want to share, all you have to do is hit mail at politicsguys.com. Or like I just mentioned, you can hook up with us on Facebook and Twitter. You'll find all of those links in the show notes. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Oglesby. We'll be back with a new episode next week. I hope you'll join us then.